listening better is just, I think, an idea, right? <laughs> That's just like something to aspire to. I can't just go, we listen better and prove my point somehow. What we needed was a measurable and scalable system for managing reader communications so that nobody would ever get lost. Hey, I'm Ben DeJarnett from Line Publishers, and this month's newsguest episode is a little bit different because we're going to talk about not one, but seven big ideas to help your news business become more sustainable. These ideas were first shared as lightning talks at our Lion Local Journalism Awards last month, and you can watch all seven presentations at the link in this episode description. What you're about to hear now, though, is a conversation focused on three of them. One about a weekly habit for improving mental health, another about a tech solution for managing reader relationships, and finally one about an experiment to generate faster audience growth. This episode is hosted, as always, by the wonderful Candace Fortman from Outlier Media, and she's joined this month by a very special guest, Lion's very own Director of Teaching and Learning, Lisa Hayamoto. But before we get to Candace and Lisa, here's a clip from one of those lightning talks I mentioned, featuring Leila Savic from La Converse. Let's take a listen. Every Friday at around three or four, we get a bottle of wine, some folks bring snacks, and we take a moment to talk about how hard our week has been in terms of the stories we're reporting on, how can we do a better job, and also what has really resonated with us. Over the last year, Bitchin' Friday has been a time for staff and freelancers to take time to learn from one another. And what I really appreciate is that it's really a time when everyone becomes horizontal, there's no more structure, it's really a time to unpack. Now you may tell me, how's that different from happy hour with colleagues, right? Well, one, there's a pandemic, so we can't do happy hour, but two, it's also during office hours and it's in the office, so create a space for people to be at ease and I think it's important that it shows that it's something that we're doing internally as a community, uh, as a team. Um, and it's also a time where people can just let their anxiety out and say, this really worried me. This is how I felt when I spoke to a mom who lost her son, because it happens often, unfortunately. We listen, we give each other advice. And uh, sometimes when we're really low, we also have guests. Uh, it's an event where we invite both freelancers and staff, so really to create a community. And um, we had recently a retired journalist, Lisa Brian Baines, who came to visit us and gave us cupcakes and really showed us a lot of support when we were low. Lisa, this clip is so interesting to me because one of the things I thought about writing as we are at the point in the year where a bunch of um, of my colleagues are writing their predictions for next year in journalism. And I, in my mind, started writing a piece about how there needed to be more healing work in journalism, both for because of the editorial process, but also because of the business end and the challenges of running a news organization, regardless, quite honestly, of size. And I decided not to write it because I thought it would be too woo-woo and people would not appreciate it. And now I hear this conversation and I feel so silly for thinking that I should not be doing that. So let's talk about the building the business part, because I do think that we spend some time talking about the um, harm happening to reporters through, you know, through that process. We don't talk a lot about the building process and how that in and of itself can be its own traumatic experience. I've tried to be really transparent about that um, as a leader on my end, but what are you hearing from other Lion members about how hard it is to process 
all that comes with running a news organization. Candace, I'm so glad you asked that. I cannot stress enough how much I am hearing from founders and news leaders and people who are running these organizations who feel just this incredible amount of stress and pressure and anxiety, but also like tied up with intense passion and obligation, right? And that is a very strong cocktail of big emotions that are really hard to process. And I am hearing more and more people really want to make space for that. Um, And people really realizing that in order to take care of your team and in order to sort of take care of your community, you also have to take care of yourself. And you have to do it in a pretty structured way, right? Like it's not something that a spa day or, you know, a single thing can address. It's something that you really have to build in to kind of, what you do and how you do it. And that's why I really love what La Converse is doing because it's built into sort of the fabric of their organization. There's a space for this. There's a place for this. And it's understood that folks can show up here and really kind of like bring their their troubles and their cares, but also, you know, their their wins and their triumphs. And it's making space for that in an industry that really hasn't always That's right. And I think that as newsroom leadership becomes more diverse, you will start to see some of that change. I think that as women, and in particular women of color, come into leadership, that is so much a part of cultural practice that some of those things will start to follow them into newsrooms. And that's an awfully good thing, I believe. Um, But how do you think that we challenge funders to find that as a priority when they are making their investments, because a lot of this comes down to funding. If an organization is is finding themselves to in a position where um, they're like things are tight and they just got to, you know, run the clock out. Right. Then they might feel like I can't really spend time taking care of myself. I got to find the money. How are we going to start having conversations with funders about how they challenge leaders to do this work. Absolutely. I'll bring it back for a moment to Lyon's definition of sustainability, which is, of course, financial health. Yes, journalistic impact, but we find ourselves talking again and again about operational resilience, right? Those other things can't happen unless you've got a really strong operational foundation on which to build. And building a strong operational foundation takes a lot of intention, a lot of time, and yes, also money. And so I really think that sort of holistic view of it is very, very important for really all of the stakeholders to look at, funders included, because again, the other work that is so exciting and so sort of fundable, it can't happen without those the that operational resilience. For sure. You know, I was talking to a consultant that we have through one of our funders for Outlier. And, you know, we've had a big year of growth. We've been able to bring in some additional support, including an operations manager and a development director. And that consultant who's been working with us for well over a year now um, saw myself and and Sarah, who's our founder and editor-in-chief, at a time where we were not just at burnout, we were well past burnout and really honestly ready to quit. And um, she saw us again now on the other side of that, but she still took the time to ask a very important question. She said, 
you know, I know how close you all were to, to almost giving this up because you were overtaxed in every possible way. How are you ensuring that as you're bringing in new staff that you aren't just adding new work, but you're actually allowing them to hold some of this work with you and some of the burden of building this organization? And that question really kind of stopped me in my tracks because a part of it, like it's really hard to grow an organization. Like you bring new people in and they certainly add capacity, but there's there's also more things to manage and more human beings to take care of. And we really do see ourselves as an organization that tries to take care of the people that work for us. So how do we like, fi- help leaders find find that space where not only are they bringing in capacity, but they're actually allowing that capacity to give them the space to go away and maybe heal some things that might have broken during the growth process. Yes. We see folks who are trying to do it all because a lot of times when they started out, they were the only one. And if it was going to get done, it had to get done by them. And that's a really hard thing to let go of. I think for a couple of reasons, right? Like the first is this really intense sense of responsibility, right? And then the second is, you know, a little bit of control, right? Like this is this thing that you've created or that you're running and and it wouldn't exist without you. And I think the goal is for it to exist without you, right? Like you're creating something that's bigger than yourself. And so you really have to set things up so that it can run without you, not only so you can take a real vacation or maybe one day step away or maybe one day step into a slightly different role, right? Like if you hold all the pieces, that can't happen. And it takes a lot of structure and again, a lot of intention for you to be able to not hold those pieces. There's more of this episode coming up right after a short word from our sponsor, Broad Street Ads. Broad Street was twice the recipient of Lion's Service Award for Best in Class Vendors thanks to its leading digital ad manager and sales platform for both for-profit and non-profit local news publishers, including many of our members at Lion. Broadstreet also supports its clients with years' worth of insights about how to build an effective sales operation, especially as an independent local publisher competing against the bigger platforms. Here's Broadstreet founder Kenny Katzgrau explaining one of the key advantages that local publishers can leverage to grow their advertising revenue. One of the biggest advantages by far for a hyperlocal news publisher is that they are local. They are a real person, um, unlike some of the competition, Facebook, Google, et cetera. So when it comes to getting those advertising sales and sponsorships, um, they can really put themselves in the shoes of a small business owner. I've heard it said that ad sales isn't selling an ad. It's really small business therapy, right? So they can go in, they can ask questions, which journalists are really good at, and kind of figure out, hey, what is it that you would like to tell the community? What are some things that you've tried in the past that haven't worked or which have worked? And they can take that information and put together a successful campaign and ultimately take this task that the small business owner knew that they had to do and take it completely off their plate. Every small business owner wants that. Every single one has something to tell the community and the hyperlocal news publisher can make that happen. To hear Kenny's full take on the advantages of selling ads as a local publisher, check out the link in this podcast episode description or visit broadstreetads.com to learn more about how Kenny and his team can help you meet your ad sales goals. So Lisa, this clip we're going to listen to is about maybe the least interesting topic in local news 
just to me. I'm sure other people find it fascinating, but we're going to talk about CRMs. And for those of you who don't have to know what that means, I'm going to let you know it's a customer relationship management system, but I'm not going to be the one teaching the lesson. We're going to listen to someone much smarter um, on this subject than I am. So let's get into it. Here's Sam Hoisington from Madison Minutes talking about why and how they've built a CRM to help manage relationships with their readers. Listening better is just, I think, an idea, right? <laughs> That's just like something to aspire to. I can't just go, we listen better and prove my point somehow. What we needed was a measurable and scalable system for managing reader communications so that nobody would ever get lost. So when we're starting a relationship, if somebody sends you a news tip or something like that, often it's about something they're vulnerable about. And if you miss that, that's just one more thing in your day-to-day -day work that you missed or didn't get to, but it can really destroy that relationship. So, and when I was looking at the competitors that we have here in town, we really consider them more of collaborators, but other news organizations in town, I never felt like the newspaper didn't want to listen to me. I would never say that. I think they have the best intentions too. What they're missing, what other organizations in town are missing are these scalable and trackable systems. So one major component of this is our CRM that we got. And basically a customer relationship management software is just a place for all of your relationship data to live in one place, right? And when we went to um, look for a CRM, we wanted three major things. One is we wanted all of our messages and emails in just one place. We wanted one portal to log in and see everything. I didn't want people spending time logging to Facebook, Twitter, all these different things, all in one place. We wanted to integrate our membership and sales data into this too. And we also, of course, hoped that this would make us more productive. And we tried a bunch of different things. I wish I could say I tried a bunch of different things so that you don't have to, but I think you know all of these could be good fits for a different kind of organization. HubSpot, Jira, Freshdesk, we tried all of these and we went with something called Front. And we went with Front for a couple specific reasons. One is a native Gmail integration, which was just like the best thing ever for us. So I'm gonna talk about that on the next slide. But we also liked Front specifically because it was really good at syncing multiple calendars per person. And both me and my co-founder are freelancing in other places right now. It also had a ton of integrations and was still pretty simple to use even with all those features. So like we're talking about CRM and the abstract sort of thing. So I wanna show you a couple different things that our CRM does. Our CRM gives us context. So it has all this data and it's combining it for us. So when Chris messages me, I can click on his profile and say, oh, Chris is a member or Chris isn't a current member. I can see what we've talked about, right? And all of that lives in one place now. So I don't have to be looking at everything else while I'm trying to talk to Chris. Our CRM also allows us to assign follow-up tasks. I think you'll find this in front and everywhere else. I never wanted to have any sort of ambiguity about who was gonna respond to what. So now me and my co-founder go in here and we say, you respond, I respond. Whatever we do, it gets assigned. Our CRM lets us quantify our communications. So that was really important to us. I can't just say we listen better and make it true, right? This allows us to track response time and a bunch of other things too. 
and our progress so far. So we lose a whole lot less things. We can onboard people faster. We're about to hire our first intern here next month, and we know that they'll be able to get involved because they only have one login. They'll be able to get up to speed a lot quicker. Uh, we also established a new rule, and that's if you can't integrate with Front, you can't use it. Because again, we wanted everything in one place, and we're locking down and committing to this. But you know, while we started tracking things, we found that our average response time was 22 hours. And I'll be honest, that's not up to my personal like desires for Madison Minutes or my co-founders. So like now we have a baseline though that we can improve. So Lisa, I would be lying if I didn't tell you that I just sent a message to our operations manager about Front because that sounds like a very interesting tool. Um, and I am excited to see how it lives um, and can operate inside of our organization. You know, for us, our SMS system operates in a lot of ways, like our CRM. We um, do a lot of communicating with our customers and our customers, our audience, our community, um, whatever word you want to use there through our SMS service. But this is a really interesting way to look at how you can integrate all of your communication into one place, whether it's with your donors, with your uh, audience and, and community, and also, of course, with all the other millions of people that a, a newsroom has to interact with. So what are some other systems perhaps that you are hearing newsrooms um, are using for their CRM needs? You know, I haven't heard a lot of details about what folks are using. What I hear more about is sort of the pain points that might lead an organization to choose to do something like this. So there are so many things to keep track of. Um, on sort of all fronts of running a news business and really interacting with the folks who help make it possible, right? Your audience, your donors, your funders, all of these folks. It's really, really important to do that well, right? I think of an analogy here. I'm going to get my hair cut later on today. And every time I go in to get my hair cut, uh, my wonderful haircut person who I love and have been going to for 11 years, she knows what kind of haircut I got last time, what kind of color I like, what my children's names are and how old they are, what, you know, if I got a new job lately, all of these things, right? And that makes me feel really seen and heard as someone who is interacting with her business. And it really makes me like want to come back and continue interacting. And then also it really, it saves a lot of time for both of us, right? She doesn't have to kind of like ask me a million questions and I don't have to kind of go through all of that with her. And really, like, this is all ultimately about, about good customer service. And if you track all of this stuff in one place, it's really good when you're interacting with folks. But it also, again, it makes your life easier because all of it's there. Show me someone whose email inbox isn't a total trash can fire or trying to keep track of who's doing what on social or like, I've got this ridiculous notepad right here where I write things, right? Like, that is just inefficient. So these CRMs really um, are sort of helping people with these pain points and making things better for everyone. So Lisa, you work with publishers in the Startups Lab and other Lion programs, of course. And have you seen any of those organizations adapt a CRM policy or find themselves in need of one? Maybe they haven't been able to actually implement it, but maybe they are starting to think about it. And what were some of the pain points that they got to there? They were like, uh-oh, we might need a fix that looks like a CRM. I haven't heard a lot of direct conversations about, about needing a CRM, 
But I think, yeah, what I've heard are a lot of the pain points that a CRM might address. So um, just generally kind of like keeping track of things. I know a lot of folks are really want to build out, you know, reader revenue uh, streams or, you know, deepen their audience engagement or just kind of like document the many things that they're trying to accomplish every day through their news business. And um, I think a CRM, you know, would directly address a lot of those pain points. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to take a listen to one more clip to close out the show. Here's Travers Johnson from Querency talking about an experiment he's running to try to accelerate audience growth. Now is a really exciting time for us because next week we're launching our second annual holiday queer gift guide, which is one of our largest, actually not one of, our largest lead magnet of the year for helping us get new newsletter subscribers. Um, last year, it accounted for a full one third of our newsletter subscribers. However, last quarter, Q3, we reached a bit of a wall in our growth. And so we had a big idea for how to climb over it. So at the top of our reader acquisition funnel is Instagram. And as you can see, the vast majority of our content has been text and image based. Now we normally have one to two posts every couple of weeks that go semi-viral, but we noticed that um, despite our content not changing, our, read, our, our follower acquisition was starting to decline. And that corresponded with the rise of Instagram putting more of an emphasis on video content. And so our big idea was that we were going to invest in smart video content and that that would help us to grow our audience by 1,000 followers in 60 days. And this is the experiment that we're currently undergoing. We're working with freelance content creators to produce smart, engaging, and viral content for use across social platforms, um, including TikTok, Instagram, and even YouTube. Now, we will try this for 60 days, see how it goes. And if it doesn't work the way we thought, then we can just pivot our um, strategy to focus on other forms of new reader acquisition. So in that clip, I hear Travers using some of that technology company idea of like experimenting over time a few days, you know, 60 days out. See if it works over 60 days. What do we change after those 60 days? What worked? What didn't work? Um, those are the sorts of experiments that I think I am really excited about when I think about the future of journalism as we start to think about startups and these new organizations that are a little bit more agile and can actually do some experimenting. So let's talk about some of the interesting experiments that we're seeing around audience growth right now in sort of the lion startup world right Yeah, we're starting to see a lot of these um, in a lot of the programs that we've run over the the last year. They've been really built around sort of this experiment mindset, which I think is is a really kind of a new thing uh, for our industry. I think uh, we kind of are steeped in this, like you come up with a big idea and then you work really hard on it and then you present it to the world. And that's really great. And it helps you feel like confidence in what you're putting out into the world. But what if you were wrong? You've invested a lot of time, a lot of money, and you don't know it until it's kind of too late. And especially for smaller publishers, you just don't have that kind of 
um, that safety net to be able to recover well from something like that. So that's why that sort of experimental mindset can be really useful. So you kind of see, okay, I've got something I want to learn, right? And then how am I going to learn that? Maybe it's, um, you know, what happens if I make a pitch to, you know, readers in this way versus this way? Or what happens if I want to try like what Travers was doing, right? Like we're trying to get over this sort of hump and we've got an idea for how we're going to do it. And so if you kind of have a hypothesis and you try it out for a certain, you know, amount of time and you've got a goal for what you think is going to happen, then you can be really agile and you can really pivot um, and learn from, from what it what happened, right? So you're basically taking all of these little pieces of what you've learned and you're moving forward with actually a lot more confidence than you otherwise would have done if you are putting like this big giant thing out into the world. So let's talk then about the audience funnel because I remember the first time I heard the phrase audience funnel and someone actually explained it to me in a way that made sense. I was like, oh, sure. Well, this makes sense, right? And it's not just about revenue. I think people think about it a lot around revenue, but it's also a really incredible editorial project product as well. Because if you can start to move people through pieces for us, for instance, if we can move people through the SMS system, which are often people coming to us in crisis. So there is something devastating to happen to them. They're losing their home. They need access to food. If we can move them from that SMS system, maybe into becoming a Detroit documenter where they are a part of the reporting process and they're also getting paid to do that work. And then maybe one day move them to membership. That for us is what our audience funnel looks like. And one day, the first time we accomplish that goal, I feel like we're going to ring a bell in the outlier office and it's going to be the greatest day on earth. But it is also, that also is, kind of goes back to our, our conversation from the last clip. It's about care. It's about how do you care for your audience and how do you move them through these processes inside of your organization? So when folks are coming to you and thinking about their audience funnel, what are the sort of conversations that they're thinking about and those sort of big picture um, ideas? that they have? Yeah, I think most folks that I encounter, they do understand an audience funnel and and what it is. I think that a lot of folks just aren't really clear on exactly what that looks like for them. And the key thing here is really kind of having the actual data to back up sort of those guesses and those assumptions. So um, I've seen a lot of audience, a lot of experiments around sort of testing different points of the funnel if we do this, would this thing happen? And what you're trying to do, right, is move folks down into that funnel so that they become like champions of your organization and maybe even support you or, right, um, to help kind of touch those other pieces of of sustainability. And that's really tricky, right? Because you're dealing with humans and humans are messy and you don't know what they're going to do and their path through your funnel is not necessarily going to be linear. So, First thing is, yeah, getting eyes on exactly like what folks are doing in there. And then second thing is figuring out how to encourage them um, through different decisions that you make to sort of move down that funnel in a way that um, sort of benefits everyone. That's right. Well, I'm so happy that we were able to spend a little bit of time with some of these conversations. These are really big ideas. These are really important conversations. And I'm glad we were able to share them with our audience. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Candice. That's it for this episode of News Guest. But a reminder that you can listen to all seven lightning talks from our Lion Local Journalism Awards at the link in this episode description. And as always, you can catch our next episode 
by subscribing to Newscast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 